G'day guys and welcome to episode 37 of the Bradley J Driver Experience. Today's guest is, well, an incredible woman. She has an amazing story and we're here today after the recent release of her memoir. What I love about this lady is her story is very powerful. It will change lives and we're all about the power of conversation here on the experience. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce Carmen Greentree. How are you, Carmen? I'm good, thanks Bradley. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And I appreciate you coming through today. It's funny, I was I was sitting there with a good friend of mine, James, who works for Channel 9, and he was telling me, we always talk about his work, and he told me about this incredible woman that he'd just met and written a piece on, and he sent me the piece, and he said, I think she would be an amazing guest for your podcast. And I read your story, and I was just, I'd, I'd never heard anything like it, I'd never met anyone in my lifetime that had been through a similar situation or a similar experience and for me the first thing that stood out was courage courage to share and to allow other people into that story and as we sort of spoke about just before we we hit record here today you know being vulnerable and sharing allows other people to feel comfortable in that space and sharing with you so I'm looking forward to diving into the story today and allowing our listeners to hear so like I said thank you so much for coming on and yeah, thank we'd love to hear about where it all began. Thank you, Bradley. And when you shared just before we hit record that you really feel drawn to making sure that you're very particular about the types of people that you have on the show and you want them to be good people, I felt so blessed that you would have chosen someone like me. So it's my honour. No, it's, it's my honour. It's my absolute pleasure. I might get you to move a little bit closer to the mic too. But I'm, I'm really interested to hear because... You know, on the experience, we love Wollongong locals. It's amazing to keep sharing amazing local stories. And when when I heard that you're from Wollongong, I was even more surprised that I hadn't heard because it's so like it's so it's big here, but it's such a small town. You kind of know everyone, you get to know everyone. But talk to me about your life growing up. Did you grow up in this area? Well, I grew up in Shell Harbour. Went to Shell Harbour Public School when I was uh, so yeah when I was a kid, and then I went to Smith Hill High School here in Wollongong. And then I finished the last couple of years at the at Fig Tree High School. Okay. So so very local, your whole very life. Very local, yeah, yeah. And then after that, I moved straight away. As soon as high school was finished, I was up into the Gold Coast. Okay. Because the Gold Coast is where all the professional surfers live. Not all of them, but a lot of them live yeah. there. And a lot of the trainers and a lot of the media that's that sort of revolve around that kind of surfing community. And because I wanted to be world champion surfer, I yeah. went and moved up there for about five years. Talk to me about that dream, the dream of, you know, because we were just talking before, I had those athletic dreams as a kid as well. And I think most Aussie kids do. We grow up around physical activity and sport that we love that idea of, of doing that for a living. Talk to me about where the passion for surfing come from. Well, I felt that... Um, so there's actually a few different reasons for why I believe from in my journey that I ended up being obsessed with sports. And one was that I had some health complications and I don't even really know what started it. But when I was about six, I ended up on a series of antibiotics for 18 months, which okay. completely ruined my internal system. And then I had to be on all these different types of diets and I just was sick a lot and didn't feel that good. 
And then that with a lot of the stress and the depression and the confusion that I was going through because my brother had been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy okay. and my parents had been under a lot of stress and emotion, like emotional stress and, and physical stress because of that. That um, So I also had emotional turmoil on top of the physical. Yeah. So I went, I gravitated to to any type of um, activity sport as fast as I could because I found quite quickly that moving my body was counteracting that intense stress so even as young as I remember being in primary school and I would run to school every day and run home and I would swim a kilometer in the morning and I was always just trying to find a way to move my body so I kind of accidentally got really really fit and really really strong and I got hooked on the endorphins that you get from pushing yourself physically so then that that was never about wanting to be a champion that was just to cope but then when I discovered surfing because I thought wow this is amazing surfing is such an incredible sport and so much fun that I thought oh I can make a living I can make a life from from being physical and having yeah. that constant sense of um, endorphins and relief, but also I'm doing something that I absolutely love. And I was at that point in my life, like extremely competitive and driven to um, to really make something of my life because my life hadn't felt that good. So I, I felt extra driven to, to make it good. Yeah. yeah. There's something, I think even about the ocean, there's something therapeutic about it. Oh, and I, I had Warren Keelan, who's an absolute ocean buff on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and we spoke about the power that it holds and it just for a moment you can get in there and you can be having the worst day or the worst week or the most stressful time and because it's so powerful and so unforgiving at any sort of given moment it's just stepping in there you kind of forget everything that's happening in your life and it's just about being in the ocean and being present yeah. so I think in many ways it was probably really therapeutic for you as a kid too going through all of that Just to escape, to feel like you're in a new world. Oh, it was definitely an escapism. And yeah, that that was just so cleansing and clearing and and yeah, rejuvenating. So I know exactly what you mean. It's amazing. So when you first started to compete sort of professionally in surfing or actually just competing, what age was that? I was 14 when I started. I actually started surfing when I was 14. Okay. And I started competing within three months. So you were just a natural. I just loved it, yeah. And, I, and maybe maybe there was a bit of natural ability, but there was just more, I guess, passion. And I had a really great coach, Mick Williams, and he threw me into it. He just said, off you go, you, you can do it. And so I completely failed. My first event came last. Okay. But the thing was, it just fueled even more desire to keep going. And I'm kind of glad that I lost so much in the beginning because it, it drove that hunger. Definitely. Whereas if you... I've got a four, nearly 14-year-old now that um, is very, very gifted at surfing. But because he's so good at it, I think that there's not much drive. Okay. It's like it, it's the hunger's not there like it yeah. was. Sometimes when you get kicked down a lot in the beginning, you end up wanting to rise even higher. It's kind of that resilience of a child, isn't it? Yeah. And I, and I had that too. Um, I remember... I remember running, I was a bit of a sprinter growing up, and I remember running one time at my dad's, it was like a yearly picnic thing they'd done for work, and I was probably, I reckon I was probably four or five, and I can remember it clearly, these two 
two twin girls ahead of me and I just couldn't catch them. And it was driving me insane that I couldn't catch them no matter how hard I tried. <laughs> I remember leaving there and thinking, I need to get faster. Yeah. <laughs> and then an obsession with running come and like that, that took on a big part of my life and footy. But I understand exactly what you mean. And so as your passion developed and those years go on, you find yourself starting to win competition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the way it kind of worked for me was I pushed all that passion into the small pool of the local area and did all the competitions to the point where in like within, I'd say about a year, year and a half, my results started to be first, 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 second, first, first, third, yeah. first, first, first. So I thought, oh, oh he, I, I need to take it to a bigger pool now. So I need to go to like other other places and I travelled a little bit to WA and Queensland and, and where there was like bigger arenas of competition. Yeah. And then again, I just kept on losing at the beginning and then I thought, great, I'm going to push harder again and then I'd get to the top of that. And so I'd, every time I got to the top of whatever pool I was in, I wanted the bigger pool. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's uh, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've watched some people and they want to be the big fish in a small pool. Yeah. But they don't get anywhere that way. And I always wanted to be the, I didn't mind necessarily being a small fish in a big pool. Like I yeah. kind of liked that excitement of, of where I could grow. It's kind of similar to that old saying, you know, different, I guess, different contexts, but if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, exactly. And it's that consistent drive to want to be better and, and to improve. And I think that's going to say a lot later in your story for your resilience, I think, too. Um, but talk to me about being, so, you know, I can imagine you're still competitively pushing yourself within surfing at like 16, 17. Oh, definitely. All the way through. And yeah. how's the focus at this point? Is it 100% surfing or are you still focused at school or? It was 150% surfing. Okay. <laughs> And um, my parents were very strict with study, so it was a matter of, right, focus on the study, get it out of the way so that I could surf. Okay. So, yeah, I just did, I did what I had to do to keep everyone happy so that I could get, just get on with what I was doing. And talk to me about crunch time because any young athlete knows you sort of get to that point in time where if it's not happening, it gets harder for it to happen and it gets harder to break that pro circuit so where did you find yourself where you had to then make a decision this is either going to happen as a full-time career or not oh I feel like that happened automatically straight away for me like I I when I was uh, by the time I was 16 I'd already committed mentally in my head that that's what I wanted for my life so I was like I was just the mindset of I'm going to give everything I've got and I won't stop until I get it. So okay. there wasn't really a, a specific crunch time moment for me. It was more just I'm committed and that's it. I'm not okay. taking no for an answer. Like, yeah. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. And so talk to me about you at one point decided then to make your journey overseas and explore what sort of created that, that emphasis on wanting to leave Australia and explore something new. Yeah, so that was actually when my surfing career fell apart and that it, I, it crumbled and I realised that I couldn't actually keep going with it because I was so uh, full on and determined. It actually worked against me. I was a bit of a, of a perfectionist and I actually developed chronic fatigue. So okay. when I was on the World Qualifying Series 
in the last year when I was 21 I'd been all around the world to um, Hawaii and to California and Samoa and Bali and Europe and America there was so many trips and I'd given it all that um, so when I got to Hawaii it was a make or break competition for me so I had enough points that if I did really well in this final event, I was actually going to make the top 16 in the world okay, and wow. get onto the CT. So that's how close I was. And it was a six-star event, and that means that you get the most – because back then there wasn't 10-star events, which there is now. Okay. But there's that, that was the highest-ranked event with the most points. So if I were, even if I only got through a few rounds, I actually would have made that top 16. Okay. But when I got to Hawaii – they said I wasn't in the comp and I'd filled out the forms, sent them off, got the confirmation like every other event through the year. But this particular event, I, looking back now, they, they wouldn't explain it to me, but now I think I'm guessing what I think has happened. And that is that they've, they've had a whole bunch of local Hawaiians that wanted to be in the event and okay. they've gone, look, we'll throw, throw them in and um, we'll put you on a reserve. Because that's what they told me. I was just on the reserve. And that day I didn't get into that event. So I'd spent my whole year paying for all the money and the events and the training and all the competitions. Yeah. And then also spent my you know money on accommodation and the entry. I didn't even get a refund. And um, yeah, to not be actually able to compete broke my spirit. Oh, 100%. Broke my heart shattered my world especially when you're so close you know you're within reach yeah and I knew that you know other people was like oh well you can give it a go next year but I couldn't because I was exhausted Mm. and I was heartbroken and I I just didn't have enough to, to to like pick myself back up so for about a week I don't think I kind of like moved out of bed I lost the will to surf I lost the will to leave I just kind of didn't know I was in shock yeah and that time in Hawaii I was really blessed because I ended up making friends with really really good people a whole circle of us we hung out every day and I spent three months with them there and we just explored the islands it's a very spiritual and magical place it's a beautiful place isn't it I've been blessed to go there twice it's it's incredible oh so you know all about it yeah, yeah. and it just it, it moved me and these people that lived there that I spent time with it moved me and I started to realize that my life was very very out of balance anyway and it and, and all the pain from my childhood and my teenage years of the confusion and the depression and and the big questions to life like what does life mean what is the purpose of all of these suicidal tendencies it started to bubble up and I started to realize that surfing had actually been uh, a coping mechanism but also something yes it was amazing and I don't regret it but it definitely was something that put a lid on all of that kind of masked it and that was starting to bubble up and I realized maybe not consciously at the time but it was starting to to unravel that I needed to change I needed and one of the first ways that I realized that I needed to change was that I'd been avoiding relationships friendships I'd 
intimacy uh, and I don't mean intimacy sexually I just mean like actual genuine connection yeah. and relating with people and being close to people I was so I was so afraid of being close to people because I was afraid that they would see my pain I was ashamed of my pain I was ashamed of who I, I was and I realized that all that was was I was broken mm. and and so so Hawaii for me was was like a, a time when I decided that I was going to quit surfing altogether and I was going to choose to go down a spiritual path to look for what was like to, to look for deeper understanding into why I was broken but more importantly to look for what could be done about becoming whole and becoming healthy and well and 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 a full person again like a healed person so i um in hawaii i dabbled in a couple of workshops with some buddhists and i also did my reiki masters in hawaii as well because i wanted to explore some energy and some alternative methods and then when i came home i did a vipassana meditation retreat at blackheath in the blue mountains which is a 10-day no speaking meditation for 10 hours a day i've heard so much about these events yeah I don't like it. It was too much. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> it would be it would be intense, especially as someone who is a conversationalist. I can't go a day without speaking to probably ten people. Yeah. <laughs> let alone ten days without speaking to a person at all. Well, back then for me, I wanted to be alone, which and even then for me it was hard. So if you're a conversationalist, yeah. you you'd want to just run. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Aubrey Marcus? No. Aubrey's an incredible podcast host from Texas and he done a 14-day silent retreat. I think it was somewhere like Switzerland and it was silent and darkness retreat. Oh. <laughs> so you sit in a dark room for seven days and literally don't see or speak to anyone. And I can just, I remember listening to that and thinking how intense. So you've come and you've done that event and and how did that feel at the time? Was it what you felt you needed then? It definitely was, yeah. I needed to do it and I got a lot out of it and I don't need to do it again. Um, But yeah, it was wonderful at the time to to realise the power of meditation and to also realise that what was going on on a physical, spiritual, emotional and mental level is fluctuating all the time. And so nothing, nothing is fixed. If, if, if you know, I, I, for a long time when I was younger, I thought, well, I'm depressed, I'm broken, something's wrong with me, but that's it. It was like, I'm stuck with that. I'm, I felt powerless okay. and a victim to that. But the meditation retreat definitely showed me that that's actually, I'm, that I'm not, I'm empowered and that I can, that there are options. There, there are tools out there where, you can actually use them to become empowered to change your state and Definitely. frequency. So, uh, I that was just a I was just at that point. I was quite young still, and it was only just the beginning. I was just touching on it. How old were you at this point? Twenty one. Okay. Yeah. And throughout that process of coming from being in that depression and that that loneliness and feeling like you couldn't escape it to sort of starting to experience these new practices of spirituality. Was it more so just the practices or were there actual people or figures within that time that allowed you to feel more comfortable sharing with, opening up to, or was it more so just the, the practice itself? For me, it was more so the practices and the, the books that I was reading. I was reading okay. alternative texts and books and a lot of it I kept 
very secret and very private because back now we live in a very new age yeah. time where it's almost hit it's different, to talk it? about yeah. meditation and yoga and spirituality but back then <coughs> i didn't <coughs> i didn't hear many people talking mm. about it and it almost, for me it almost and this is just me my experience it felt almost a bit scary to talk about it okay a little bit like i wanted to just i was weird and i wanted to keep it private yeah so i just kind of dabbled myself privately and just did all the practices and, and read all the books and didn't really share that with anybody for a long time you're right it, it's definitely changed hasn't it i think even the conversation around mental health yeah absolutely. and we spoke about it in a few of the podcast episodes that i've had it feels like i don't think we're there yet mm. where it's where it's um not taboo at all or people feel very comfortable but i definitely feel even presently, I don't know if it's with age for me, but the last couple of years, you know, me and my mates talk about this stuff very consistently. You know, we're all not shy to check in. I think it's becoming more consistent, which is amazing for for our society and for especially for the young people growing up now. They feel more comfortable to open up about it. Yeah. But I yeah, think absolutely. these practices are becoming more common too. They are, yeah. Yeah, it's much more easy to say, hey, have you tried this technique? Or, hey, have you tried that technique? Or, have you heard of that person? And, Definitely. And, yeah, it's more free-flowing now. Yeah. Definitely. So talk to me about sort of you've had that retreat and you're starting to explore these practices. What then inspired you to then go to the next stage, which was travelling to practice in India? Well, because I tried psychologists, counsellors and everything that I could see at the time our Western culture had to offer and they were leaving me very, very short of, of feeling any change whatsoever and any outcome, I thought I'll explore the Eastern philosophy. So in dabbling in the, some of the, the courses that I'd already done over here, I'd met some people that had been over there and I just... Yeah, I just it was just a thought that popped into my head. Like, I guess India is where it's at for gurus, yeah. <laughs> ashrams, yoga, meditation. Yeah. So, and, you know, the Dalai Lama was one of the big names back then that, you know, you didn't really hear. We didn't have, I, there was, internet was very, very small. It's not like it was, it is now. And so I didn't hear about a lot of people. So the Dalai Lama, I guess, was the one and only figure, I think, that stood out for me. And I thought, oh, well, he's running courses and he's at his hometown at the mo at that time that I jumped on it. I thought, sweet, I'll, I'll sign up for his course and off I went. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very wise man too. So I can imagine the attraction to go and to learn under him yeah. and, to, and to hear all of that, that knowledge. But you got a lot of warnings, didn't you, before leaving about the danger. And I think even now, I know with my grandparents, if I say I'm going to Queensland, they're like watch out, I heard that there was, you know, something going on in Queensland and you've got to be careful. Like, yeah. it's it's typically, a, I guess, an older thing that travelling was, was more foreign back then than it is now. But even so now, there's still those worries and it's new territory. A lot of people haven't explored it. They're not comfortable with whether it's safe or not. But you had a lot of warnings from family and friends, didn't you, about... I did have a few. Not a lot, but definitely enough... Um, serious ones like people with genuine concern that okay. uh, had actually shown considerable worry so yeah that um but i was so fearless and to be honest i'm still very fearless that's amazing to hear <laughs> that's amazing to hear because that's actually it's a really nice trait to have where 
you don't doubt yourself, you, you trust in people, I think. And, and that's got to be hard after we, you know, a lot of people hear what you went through. But talk to me about booking everything to head over there and, and getting there. What sort of you land in India and what are the decisions that you're making at the time? I hadn't booked anything except for the course with the Dalai Lama. That was the only thing I'd booked and my ticket to get there, obviously, on the plane. Yeah. And I, I was so used to travelling, so I just... And I, I always wing things. Like, it's just... I, yeah. I like to be... I was, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it, but a bit of a gypsy or a nomad, just someone that... Spontaneous. Yeah, and so many of my travels had been like that. Like, you could book a hotel at any moment. You could jump on a bus at any moment. You could go wherever... You, like, I'd never had any problems travelling anywhere. And, yeah, India was just so different for me. As soon as I got there... I tried to go to a proper government tourist agency, which I was told to make sure you go to a proper legal government tourist agency. So I, you know, that's what I looked for. And I had my Lonely Planet and I knew exactly where, which bus that I had to get on to get to where I was going. So like I knew in my head exactly what I needed to do. And I was dead, like I was always, and I still am someone that's dead set on doing it my way, the way that I need to do it. Um, but when I went to this tourist agency, they were liars. They they weren't. They were a scamming, and they were not. Okay. A, they were not a government tourist agency, even though it said it actually said on the door "government tourist agency." Okay. And uh, yeah, it was just a big, big uh, scam. So tell me, whereabouts in India were you at this point? So this was in Delhi. Okay. Flown into Delhi, yeah. Okay. So which back then was it common to travel there? Like, was that the common place in India? For travellers or... Well, that's one of the major airports yeah. and one of the major cities. And I, I, I felt like, yeah, it was a common place to land. And one of the girls that I'd spoken to leading up to my trip that uh, she'd just come back from India, she, that's I sort of followed her lead. She said, yeah, I just flew okay. to Delhi and, and okay. uh, went from there. So when you're then booking that transport, are you booking transport to go... Directly to this course? Yeah, directly on the bus straight to Dharamsala, which is like where the course was. Okay. Yeah. And so what? at what point did you realise that you maybe made the wrong decision with this company, that something's not right? I hadn't realised that until later, like when, when I was in Kashmir. Um, so so uh, when I was with the two, there was two men, young, young men, that were handling me that's a good word actually handling me when I was in their office and oh they were so charming come on in sit down relax let me make you a chai would you like a cigarette can I get you something to eat put your feet up you look like you've had a hard day what can we do for you and it was very um just they I felt I didn't I didn't realize but I was being very very played and then, so did it feel genuine, or did it feel because you know when you often when you travel, you want to immerse yourself in the culture. So if someone's nice and they're going out of their way, you want to feel like it's oh maybe this is the way here, maybe this is the way that people treat us. They're excited to have us here. Was that the feeling, or did you feel it was a bit deceptive, or maybe not genuine? I at first felt like oh well, I'm open to a different culture. I'm, I'm expecting yeah. a different culture. I'm expecting different formalities. And so I was like, oh, I'm having a new experience. Like I didn't think anything bad of it. 
Um, but I start, so, so what happened is over several hours, and it went on for, for quite a few hours, I was attempting to get my ticket booked on, on this bus. Yeah. And every time I tried to get my, just all I wanted was to get that ticket, they would derail me with something like, oh, just relax. Don't worry about it. Just, just, just take some time to chill. And then I'd be like, well, I've chilled enough now. Like, can I just get that yeah. ticket sorted? Well, why don't you just have a look at this map and have a look at this pretty place and have a look at this here. And it's yeah. like, no, I, I, this is what I want to do. I want to go to here, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. You should do this and this. You can't miss out on this and this. And I was like, no, no, I'm not a tourist. I'm here on, like, I'm here for a spiritual journey. Yeah. I'm here to study. Anyway, it just went on and on and on and I got worn down and I got tired and I got over it and I thought all I wanted to do was get out of Delhi because yeah. it had just already been a nightmare leading up to that point. And in the book, I go into a bit more detail about some of the things that happened before I got to that point that had added to this tired and run down feeling that I had. And in the end, he's like, look, I just think you should catch this plane here and catch this bus from this spot to Dharamsala because it's going to be safer, it's going to be quicker, it's going to be more pretty. And they were putting fear into me at that point. Now, when he started to put the fear into me and started to really push, push what I wanted away and push for what he wanted, then I started to feel like this is really not normal. Like I've travelled yeah. a lot. And I know there's different cultures, but I don't care what culture you are. Like this kind of feeling that I was having at that moment was like, mm, this is this is just not even treating me very right. Like this yeah. is not sitting well. So um, yeah, I, I really felt like he pushed hard on that. It's not safe. This bus I wanted to go on was not safe, and that I should go this way because it's safer for a woman. So in the end, I just said, fine. I was so over it. I said, look, I'll just yeah. do it that way. I'm still going to get to the Dalai Lama yeah, exactly. and Durham the desired destination. And I'm just going to go, I'm just going to be flexible just, yep. just so I can get like, to be honest, it's interesting because I'm so tired. All I wanted to do was get on that. Four, he was like, oh, it's 14 hours. You sure you want a 14 hours? I was thinking, yes, because I can close my eyes and yeah. sleep for 14 hours. Yeah. And when he was like, this this flight here and then this and that, and I was like, oh, but that sounds like so... Disjointed. Yeah, I, I, wanted, I, the, I wouldn't be able to get more than an hour of sleep at a time. And I was like, oh, that's not at all what I, what I want to do. But I gave in because I just didn't know what else to do at that point. So you've caught a flight, and is this like a commercial plane or is it... So it's a small commercial plane okay. from Delhi airport to like a domestic plane to um, Srinagar. Okay. Yeah, in how, how long was that flight? I think it was an hour, an hour and 20 maybe. Okay. Very, it wasn't very long. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably similar like going from Wollongong to the Gold Coast basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And from there, there was a bus that was, was it arranged to pick you up or was it just a bus so, that you jump on? So the entire family was in on the scam and the, so the boy, the young man, I say boy because he was quite small, but he's a young man. He was a young man and uh, he, so the one that sent me on this plane, he had his brother pick me up. Okay. And his brother was the main perpetrator my, when I was uh, like held captive yeah. on this boat for two months. 
So um, he was the one that picked me up in his car. Okay. And yeah, then it um, yeah it was I was pretty I didn't realize that it was over at that point, but that was that was it. I was okay. I was in dangerous dangerous territory at that point. And so you're picked up by this gentleman. What's his persona like at first? Is it is it uncomfortable? It was very similar to it was like an older version of the same guy in Delhi okay. in the um, the tourist agency. So it was like hospitable, welcoming, charming, and like a little bit charismatic, but also very pushy and very kind of like, well, I'm 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 here to look after you. But it's but it was more like. It didn't get the. It was the same kind of feeling of yeah, but I don't really feel like you're giving me like what helping me with what I want. You're helping me with what you want for okay. me. And so it was like oh, well, this is not what I want, you know. And usually when that happens overseas, you just think it's about making money. Like yeah, they just yeah. want an extra fare. Like you know what I mean. And you get to the point where you're so over it. Like you said, you just want to get there. So you're like, all right, like whatever. I've got to pay a little bit extra or whatever it is. I'll get there. So then you've obviously been taken somewhere. Have they taken you straight to the boat where you were held captive? It was, we were headed straight for the boat, yeah. So okay. we, we had to make a stop to get money out. And uh, that, was, that was when I knew something really bad was happening because, uh, so Rafig was the, was the older brother's name. He was standing, so when we stopped for, to get some money out, I needed to have some cash so that I could spend if I wanted to buy something. But he was standing in between me and the ATM and he's he was like literally arguing with me saying that I'm a female and this is Kashmir and this is a Muslim state and women are not allowed to be out alone. Women are not allowed to go to the bank. Women are not allowed to do anything in this state. Men have to okay. do everything for you in this state. And he literally stood in between me and the ATM and he said, I, you will not be allowed to do this. And I was like, well, it's just there. No, I, like, I'm a tourist. Aren't tourists yeah. supposed to be coming here to... to like, spend money here. Yeah, like, what am I supposed to do? He's like, you're supposed to give your card to me and I'm supposed to do it for you. That's the way, that's the custom here. Okay. So, you know, again, you know, there's that argument of wearing me down and I thought, well... You know, at this point, I'm in Kashmir and he's just told me it's a Muslim-dominated state and that women... And there was no tourists around and there was no one that spoke English around and I didn't know where I was and I'm more tired at this point. Yeah. And I'm getting so over it and worn down and I just thought, well... You know, maybe it was lack of judgment. I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't think of another option. So I went, fine, here's my card and here's my PIN number and you get me the money out for me. So he doesn't go to the ATM. He walks into the bank. He says, wait here, which, which actually I only just realized recently was quite ironic because in one moment he's saying women aren't allowed to be alone. Women have to have a man with them. But here he is leaving me alone to go yeah. into the bank by himself, which is a contradiction to what yeah. he was saying. So off he goes. 20 minutes later, he comes back, doesn't give me my money, doesn't give me my card, refuses to. And he says, I'll take care of it for you. And he, I found out that he'd taken 
all of the money from all my bank accounts. Okay. A whole lot. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so at this point, I can imagine you're quite, quite intimidated. Like, this is oh. quite scary. And <laughs> yeah. Especially to be in a foreign country where you can't communicate with anyone. There's no one around that. There's no that, mobile phones really back then either. Yeah. It wasn't like that. And so then you're back in this car and you're travelling towards this boat. Yeah. And at what point does it become... Is, is there any thought in your head that I need to get away somehow here? To be honest, I was so naive that I actually thought... I had, I had no idea he'd taken all my money. And I was telling myself... Oh, I'm sure he's gonna just. I'm sure he's. Okay. I'm sure he's actually doing the right thing by me. I'm sure he is just taking care of my money. I'm sure that he'll give me my bank card back. I'm sure that this will work out. I'm sure that I'll get on that bus. I'm sure I'll be fine. Like I was telling. Yeah. I think I was telling myself that as a coping mechanism to, to just okay. like to not completely freak out because I didn't have any other option. I couldn't think of where to run. I couldn't think of what to do. I couldn't. Yeah. Like I just, I was, I think I was also hoping. It was like, oh, please let this just be okay. Let this just yeah. be some weird custom that like passes and I'll be off. And The thing is you also think that you've heard of these things going wrong before but it never happens to you, right? That's the thing. Like it, you know, yeah. this is something that you hear about in the movies or you, you read about in a book. Yeah. Not something that actually happens to you or something that you experience. Yeah. So talk to me about reaching that boat. What, what's your thoughts in that moment and, and what happens from there? So I was told that I was to spend two nights on the boat because the bus wasn't going to be available until whatever okay. day it was, if it was Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember now, but whatever day it was, it, the, the, the apparent shortcut was going to be the bus. I mean, sorry, was going to be the flight the two nights on his brother's boat, his brother was going to take care of me and then it was going to be the bus to Dremsala. So I knew I was, it wasn't like unexpected when I got onto the boat. It was like, well, I know that this is an interim two night stay. Okay. And to be honest, I was thinking, great, I can sleep. (laughs) I can just sleep and then make the most of like, just the moment to, you know, I don't know, just sit around, whatever, have a look at what's going on there, Be look at it like, a, oh, well, now I've been to Kashmir. Yeah. You know, another tick on the, the list of where I've been and what I've done. Look at, I was always looking for the best in every situation, you know, like that was kind of just my general mindset too, like to try and make the most of, of life. And so I was looking from, from that perspective of, oh, well, how can I make the most of this? Um got your question so yeah so you're you're obviously an optimist at nature especially through your practice mm. when you start to feel more comfortable with dealing with your emotions and you're trying to be positive and and optimistic about every opportunity that presents itself you get to this point now where you're in this boat and i can imagine you like you said you're tired and you're ready just to rest was it immediate that that the mood and and everything changed or did it take time over the course of that two days I, so, so as soon as he took the money from me, I saw the side of him that was really like kind of, 
like I was scared. That's let let me just put it like that. Like I felt I felt a bit scared by his nature at that point, and so that just slowly I just saw more and more of that really quickly, and um, yeah, like. And, and, and I, I felt like it was okay, though, because I felt like, well, I'll get off this boat and it'll all be in the past. Yeah. Like, it, this is an interim stop, so who cares what he's like? Like, as long yeah, as I course. get my money back and get, um, you know, onto that bus, then, like, I, I don't care, you know? Yeah. It's not, I, I'm moving on. You know what's all a bit confusing and scary? Buying your first home and getting your first loan approved. You see, I'm 24 and I bought my first property last year. Even as an agent at the time, there was so much I didn't know about finance because we aren't taught these things at school. You see, I'm blessed now because one of my best mates, Zachary Bidoff, is a mortgage broker. And now that I'm self-employed, I have to be smarter with my money. So I sat down with Zach to refinance my loan and to get the absolute best deal I could. And it's saving me money every week. You see, the great thing about Zach is he's 28 years old, Super relatable, and he knows everything you need to about buying your first property. So whether it's pre-approval or refinancing that you need, head across to ZacharyBidoff.com or find the link in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, like a, it was a, it was a it was pretty hostile and uncomfortable pretty quickly, and it just kind of got worse and worse pretty quickly. Okay, yeah. so. Obviously, then this is where the, this part of the story, which is quite emotionally terrifying and also is, is going to play, I guess, is, is really going to toy with your mental state and your physical state throughout this time. So when did it actually start that the abuse began? On the f- first night, I believe. Okay. Yeah. The first night after dinner, he, took, he wanted to show me the lake at night on a okay. boat. Like an, so, so it's a houseboat that's, uh, just to paint a picture, it's a really, really big lake. And then there's a really small, old, like a village type island with, it's really, really quiet. Like there's nothing there really at all. And then there's just a few houseboats that's sort of connected, okay. and like um, fixed on the edge of this, um, this little island. But then to, so basically to get anywhere, you either have to, catch a speedboat or um the, they have these long wooden shikara boats okay and they usually fit well there's bigger ones and there's smaller ones and they usually fit like couple two to sort of six people in them yeah and they just row them slowly across the lake so i just wanted to get to bed and have a rest but he insisted again very very insisting and very dominating um he was like i just want to show you the lake at night how beautiful it is so he waited till he waited to do this until when everyone was asleep. Yeah. And he and I went, oh, fine, I'll just quickly have a look at the lake, shut him up, and then I'll... Because I couldn't get rid of him. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I went on the lake, and then it was in the boat that he started to put the, the, the hands up my skirt, the hands in my top, yeah. the hands, uh, the, like, kissing my face and, and trying to tell me that, you know, trying to get it on with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I managed to get him off and I think it was because I actually made quite a lot of noise and there was, I think he was like, oh, well, I don't want anyone to like see what's going on here. So we went back 
and then um, he just followed me. He wouldn't let me go to bed and he just kept following me until he ended up forcing himself on me in one of the front rooms where no one was. And, and then he followed me into my bed and, and that was the, he raped me on the first night. Far out. So I, I can't even imagine what's going on because it's so, you're not even close to home. You're so, that situation is hard enough and, and terrifying enough when you're in comfortable surrounds, but you're in another country. You have no way of contacting any of your family, friends or your support network. This is happening. How, how, do, you, how do you cope with that? Oh, you know, because I was on this, I was, all, you know, as I explained before, I was already feeling so depressed and so down and so desperate for answers. And I, I was just focused on, like, I just need help. I've got to get to this Dalai Lama and I've got to learn this stuff because I felt like if I, I felt like I was going to end up wanting to die if I didn't find the answer. <coughs> that, Excuse me. sadly, I actually felt like, oh, well, you know, what's what does it matter anyway because i'm already in a really dark place and you know once i i'll I'll either get to the dalai lama and i'll figure it all off i'm here in india to to find the answers to life and i'll figure it all out and i'll heal anyway or i won't and i'll die anyway like it was kind of like i was in that darker place that it was like well you know it's all right i'll get on that bus and i'll It'll, I'll just leave it in the past. It'll be fine. Like, I'll just get over it. Like, I just felt so screwed up anyway. At this point, you're on the boat, and you, and you said that there were others yeah. on the boat too? His family, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then you can't, you can't even say, anyone to, say anything to anyone because no one's going to believe what you say when it's their son or, you know, their brother or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. I had actually also heard at some point that in some countries, that in some places and cultures, that the woman can be the one that can be blamed for the act as well, the act of rape. So I actually remember talking to the, trying to talk to the dad to see if I could get help from the dad to, to get to escape. But I remember being so frightened of what, I was saying, so I didn't want to say this has happened because I was so, okay. I, I was afraid that he would then blame me. So I said, his son's trying to do this. Okay. And is that custom because it is, um, especially an Islamic state or Muslim state that, that I know there's been talk before in some of those countries that you're revealing too much or and, and it's suggestive. Is that what the line of, of thinking that you're going through? Is that they're going to blame this on me because I'm not culturally dressed or I'm not culturally appropriate? Yeah, I, I think that I was, I, I was just thinking that that was a possibility. I didn't know okay. for sure, but it was a, definitely a thought process that I had where I was aware that, well, this is a culture I don't understand. This is a culture I haven't done my research on I didn't expect to be in Srinagar in Kashmir I did, that's not part of where I was headed I I was well aware that um, Hindus were I didn't really know much about their religion or their culture and you know I don't want to make this about a cultural thing at all but all all I had in my mind was that I was going to the Dalai Lama and they were Buddhist and 
and Hindu, more Hindu based. And all I knew was that from what I'd looked into that they were very like kind, loving, gentle people. Yeah. And so for me, when I ended up in Kashmir and then I found out that, it, well, well, Rafik had pr- like put the heavy on me so quickly and started brainwashing me really heavily that I was in danger, that this was an unsafe place for, for females, that I actually did start to think in my head, well, maybe this is the kind of place where if I say that this has happened to me, it will be my fault because yeah. I'm a woman and because I've dressed a certain way or I've done a certain thing or just because I'm a woman. That's yeah. a, And that's a terrible feeling because, you know, we all know, I think the the beauty and the blessing of living in 2020 is that we've experienced these cultures more and we all know beautiful people from these cultures you know i have amazing muslim friends i know buddhist friends i know i don't necessarily know anyone who's um studies hinduism or that form of religion but we know beautiful people from all of these religious backgrounds and beliefs but unfortunately in any walk of life there are the bad ones and the ones that that look to take advantage or manipulate the teachings or the understandings of that religion to suit their own agenda. And that's obviously what's happening in this case. And so obviously that's night one. We're talking about two months of being in this position. And is this consistently happening? I'd lost count of the, um, the, um, yeah, how long it just, it all just blurred into one big mess. And I checked out, like I wasn't in my body. I, I was, I created an entire fantasy where I was living out there somewhere. Like I just, yeah, I blacked, I blacked it out. It's just like almost a form of escapism. Yeah. To yeah. to to cope. Yeah, yeah. I did a lot of chanting and prayer, like repetitive prayer, and a lot of meditation, so I could just bypass. It. So at no point in this two months have you left that boat? Are you on that boat for the whole two months? So I was only, I was, yes, I went off the boat, but only with Rafik and, okay. or his dad. And okay. like I said, his, because I found out that his dad was was like kind of, they were, they were all in on it. They all knew what was going on. Okay. And so, um, and I only really worked that out afterwards, but... Um, yeah, so I was taken with them places. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so you're a prisoner of the family, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And... But anywhere we went, there there was never any other tourists. I never saw okay. other tourists where we went, and I never... Well, that's actually not true. I, sorry, we, we went hiking in the Himalayas. It's, it's really difficult to, to remember everything because I do block a lot of it out. Like, when you've gone through a trauma... Of you know you you really i really have to for my own sake put a lot of it away that's why i wanted to write the book because then i've got everything out and if people say oh but this and that and i go yeah but that's that's because i put it away and i've forgotten yeah so like just now i just remembered yeah there was a point where there was a couple of non-english speaking tourists but they were from europe somewhere and they were they joined us on a hike in the Himalayas that Rafi forced me to go on with him. And um, that was really great for one reason, was that while they were around, he couldn't rape me. So I was yeah. feeling happy that at least I couldn't really... I didn't really feel comfortable to say anything to them because I didn't know if they'd understand and I was scared yeah. that... 
it would get back to him or yeah but um yeah well like but that was the only time i saw tourists the rest of the time when we went out it was to pick up supplies for something or to like you know a village market or something to get something or to try and force me to buy something which was okay which was just insane but um yeah so there, there was never any there was never anywhere for me to go like i was always looking i was always thinking well okay could I run here? Could I do that? Could I speak to that person? But there just wasn't anywhere to go. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't going to trust the police, but I never saw, I never saw like where there was police stations, but I just, even if I did, I, I still don't know if I would have felt comfortable or confident enough to actually go into the police because Rafik seemed to know everyone, seemed to be like close to everyone. Yeah. And I felt my intuition was right. I found out that they did bribe the police and that I had that strong intuition that if I went to speak to the police that they were just going to bribe them anyway. Yeah, that's a question I had because you don't understand in these cultures who holds significant um, presence within that community mm. and, and who is actually respected, who is not. And you don't know whether you're speaking... To the right people at the right time about the situation you're in or whether that's going to make your situation worse mm. that's what's so scary about it but if i believe and, and and if i understand correctly you could call it somewhat of a miracle that you were found i think it was an absolute act of god you call it whatever power you want i like god but you can call it universal energy or yeah Allah, whatever you want but i mean for me it's god it was a, a, an act of god and it was a friend's intuition that... It was her dream. She had a dream. Explain that to me. So Kat told me that she just had a... She woke up in the middle of the night from having a really intense dream that I was in danger and that I needed help and that something was really wrong and that she woke up and, and trusted the her intuition about that dream, like that there wasn't just a dream, that there was actually something serious to that that it was a message from god cats you know she she believes in god too so she felt the same way that this was divine intervention and uh she yeah that's that's what she did she rang up my parents and because at this point and this was quite far into the trip but Rafik started to get greedier and greedier and 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 had actually contacted my parents to try and extort money and and, and 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 items he wanted certain items from from my parents that there was a phone connection a phone number okay and because of that phone number Catherine was able to with the help of mum and dad when Catherine all together with that phone number was working with the police and the embassy in Australia and the police and the embassy in India and they just Catherine said she promised herself she wouldn't get off the phone until she knew I was safe and Incredible. Within what a 24 good hours, yeah, yeah. Within 24 hours, I was, I was rescued. That's amazing. So, Rafig is contacting your family, trying to extort money. At what point? How long had he been doing that for? When Cat had that dream? Or that I don't one? think very long, because because yeah. I, I, I don't think he got like he he didn't get very far with that process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it was almost like that, you know, that we have this infinite intelligence, that this this higher power, and it was like it used Rafik's greediness against him. That that phone call, it was like then Definitely. the universe went great. 
we'll send it we'll send a dream because yeah. then there's a connection now because there was no point in sending a dream when there was no way to find no it. way to find yeah but as soon as that happened it was like wham bam like because i'd been praying for like just god to save me were you religious at this point in time i would say spiritual it... okay yeah because i don't i don't when i use the word god to me it's not any particular religious god it's just the universe energy okay. it's it's one highest power and so i'm not religious i'm just i believe in something spiritual something bigger than us that's incredible talk to me about the moment where you're getting taken off that boat and you know that you're in safe hands <sighs> i when it was one of the the highlight moments like the standout moments was when these big policemen arrived on a boat with guns and he said my name he said Carmen is that you are you Carmen and there was a there was a he had a he had this like strength in his voice and determination in his voice but it felt protective it felt like firm and strong but not not scary it felt but honest it felt honest yeah it felt genuine and it felt like oh he had me like yeah. in a good way he was gonna actually like he was like how can i like, i'm here to help you he said that's right i'm yeah. here to help you and um, what look like what do you need what like have you got your things can I help you what can I do here like it was it was just so the opposite of what I'd had for two months that it you could tell was just it felt safe I can imagine yeah I can imagine and and obviously at this point in time you're, you're taken from that boat is he taken into custody or are you just jetted out there so I got rescued first yeah. And then they came back to did I did I say rescued or arrested? I got rescued. rescued. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought I said I got arrested. I got rescued first, and then the police came back to arrest two of the the, the men. Incredible. Yeah. And so obviously, then how, how long after are you reunited reunited with family and friends? Uh, just under a week. Because I had okay. to, because I, I he'd taken all my passports, tickets, okay. documents, so that's everything, a process. and I, they, yeah, I couldn't get on a plane to come back to Australia until I like until the embassy and the police had actually attempted to find that, and that took a, a few days, and it wasn't easy. Apparently, they were they were looking for a while, but then they did manage to recover at least my passport. Talk to me about getting home and. And when you're home, I feel like the emotion would pour out, right? Because really for the first time, it's like, I'm actually free of this. Like, I'm free of him, but I still have to cope with this. And now I'm in a place where I don't have to worry about him being here. But, but I get to cope and I get to be emotional about it. See, for me, it wasn't like that. For me, I felt like I had to stuff it all in and keep it quiet and keep it away and keep it locked up and not share it with anyone because I felt so confused by what had happened and I okay. felt like it was all my fault because okay. I felt like, well, it was my stupid fault for going to India. Okay. And, you know, my stupid fault for not, like, for getting myself into that situation. And so I just felt lots and lots of shame 
and embarrassment, humiliation, and I felt like a loser. I felt like, like I was, because I'd gone to look for answers. I'd gone to India for help and healing and to learn things. And I wanted to come back when I'd learned something. And I came back more broken than when I left. And so I just felt like I'd completely failed. I was completely worthless. And so I was even more um, afraid to exist in society. Like it was, it was every, everything that I felt before was like tenfold. So I just, it, yeah, I, I suffered for a long time. I blamed myself for 15 years. So sorry to hear that. Just thinking and hearing you say that there, I think like I've got a younger sister, you know, my mother, like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine being, let alone in your position, being in the position of your family and that, that anger, you know what I mean? That anger to want, to, to want almost revenge. Mm, I never I mean? felt to... anger. I felt sad for him. Okay. I felt really, really sad that, well, not just for him, but for all of them, I felt sad that they'd all done that and that they were those kinds of people. I was shocked. I was so naive. I felt like everyone was good at heart. I, I really, yeah. truly felt like that we're all humans and that we're all good people and that we were all trying to do the best that we can and that we would never want to intentionally do anything to hurt anyone. And I was so naive because I couldn't even believe that, that he could do the things that he was doing. And so yeah. I, was, I was shocked, but I was also like incredibly sad that yeah. I was seeing a side of humanity that was like that. I didn't, I didn't want to think that humans could be like that. That was... That was really hard for me because, you know, it even made me feel ashamed to be a human. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know like, what you I... mean. I know what you mean. So you said you bottled it up for 15 <clears throat> years. How hard is that and how does that affect every aspect and area of your life with knowing who to share with? Do you share with anyone at all? Well, now it's totally different. Like of course. in the last few years, writing the book and feeling like I'm ready to share it and I've unpacked it and I want to share it. It feels great. But leading, yeah, those first 15 years, I thought I was fine. I just bottled it. I locked it up into a little yeah. treasure chest inside, metaphorically pushed okay. away. And I just thought that I was tough and over it. And okay. I just... I, I yeah I, I think that it kept what it did is it kept me small it kept me always playing everything a little bit safe in life because it was like well I've got this big Pandora's box over here yeah. that I don't even know about I'm blind to it myself but it is there but I don't want to face it so I'm playing so safe and so small in life and keeping myself just like don't be seen too much don't be heard too much don't get too close to anyone because God forbid that comes out. And so when when I so I had another breakdown, a really bad breakdown about five years ago, maybe six years ago now. And that big breakdown, I I wanted to commit suicide. Like I was okay. I was really just again another another probably the third major time in my life where I was like, right, I really do actually think I'll take my life. And I didn't want to do that because I, I believe that we that that's not the answer. My belief and what feels right for me is that, well, we'll end up just 
having another lifetime where we have to do it again or, or, or go somewhere and it's like we'll have to pick it up some some way so I didn't want that to happen so I thought you know what maybe I should actually pick up where I left off in India like maybe just because he derailed me they derailed me with this scam and, and what happened to me just because that happened doesn't mean I had to give up on what I was looking for yeah so I jumped again into spirituality and committed to myself on a really deep level like I because because at the time I was committed to my husband committed to the kids committed to being the best of everything for everyone else but I wasn't committed to myself yeah and not my true self I was squashing my true self so I committed to my true self even if like consciously I chose that even if it meant I lost everything because okay. I've all, I, if I'm going to die anyway, I may as well give myself a chance and lose everything anyway, but at least I've got a chance. So I did this full 180 where I was like, right, that's it. I am living for myself now first because, well, maybe, you know, I'm worth it. I started to actually get to the Definitely. point where I thought, well, I've lived feeling like I'm not worth it for so long. Maybe this time I, I actually can claim that and find that so I dived really really deep into myself and my truth and I picked up where I left off and I started to I I I gave myself permission to take the time to become whole become healed and to look at like open that treasure chest yeah and I start unpacking what had happened and it's the best thing I've ever done in my life because now I'm completely free and I can talk about it like I I can talk about it to anyone I can ask answer any question and I can get close to people I can use my voice I can be seen I can shine bright and it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what you see in my closet now even if it is yucky even if it is messy even if there is some shadow stuff in there I'm proud of it I love it I'm, I'm so glad to hear I'm, that. I'm happy with who I am. I can imagine a huge weight off your shoulders in that decision to, to dive into that and to start to heal yourself and start to understand that in this, and as we said in the start, there is so much power in who you are as a human being yeah. and the positive effect that you can have on other people's lives because of that. Yeah. And it's amazing to see you doing that now through the book and through these interviews and through everything that you do. I'm interested to, to know how it shaped your life and your career as well as, as motherhood. I can imagine you know, when you've been through something like that as a mother, it, does it make you more wary with your kids or do you have to try and let go of that and, and allow them to experience life? What's that like? So as a mum, I really my my intention with motherhood is to first of all just love them unconditionally you know just as they are it doesn't matter who they are to me as long as they're happy within themselves and secondly I work very consistently and persistently at encouraging them and reinforcing to them that they have a connection inside of them to their own higher power, their own inner guidance system and their intuition. And I tell them every day, 
you know, like you go to school or you listen to what people say on TV or on the media or, or with friends and family. I said, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't sit right with you, then trust that. You don't have to believe what the teachers say. You don't have to believe what I say. You don't have to believe what you see on TV. Believe in what feels right for you and just go with that and I'll support that unconditionally. And, and the reason why I feel like that is a powerful thing to do for my children is because I I want to I want to have them feel like they can learn how to trust their intuition and guidance system from the earliest age and so that when I can't be there that that they can trust themselves of course and they can navigate their own way through the life and that's true freedom yeah that is true freedom that ability to to make those decisions and understand what we're being thrown at us in life through our own eyes yeah and I, th- I think that's a huge blessing for your kids and they're blessed to have an amazing mum who has been through so much and now I feel like you're going to be a really really as you would have always been but an incredible guide for them for their life mm. someone to to look back on for amazing strength and I can imagine that's instilled in your kids too now yeah they they have great intuition like yeah. amazing intuition they just they, um, you know, my oldest one, he's nearly 14 and he's so mature and independent and wise for his age. And I just see him making very, very smart decisions all the time. And I just quietly know that it's because I instilled that sense of trust yourself, trust your intuition. Don't do anything that doesn't feel right to you, you know. Definitely. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really like happy with that. Talk to me about the beginnings of the book the beginning of the was book? there was there for you was there the I guess you, had you ever written before was this new territory to you oh so when I was a child I spent a lot of time writing poetry I love okay. poetry and I love short stories and I wrote plays and I wrote little scripts for, for little movies and I um, wrote short stories I just I wrote all the time but I always kept a diary religiously like as a child I'd have like several diaries beside my bed and I was always writing in my diary as well and even when I traveled on the surfing circuit it's always writing every day so I feel like it was always just a part of me writing is I'm a writer (laughs) so it was always there was never that thought to get someone else to write the book or you know what I mean like it was always I want to guide this journey or everyone because because you know, you know what it's like. People, I had a lot of people in my life say, oh, everyone wants to write a book. You want to write a book, whatever, yeah. as if you're going to write a book, right? And um, it, I'm sure they were well-natured, but they were even some of my family and close people were like, oh, why don't you just pay someone to write the book for you, please? Yeah. Just just get a ghostwriter. And, oh, if you, if you fail, don't worry, you can pay for some. And I was just like, oh, I just kept thinking to myself, I've got this. I know how to do this. Like, why couldn't I? I was thinking to myself, why don't they believe in me? Why don't they think I could be a writer, you know? What what makes someone else more capable than me? And I thought, well, I'll I'll show them, you know? (laughs) So I just quietly ignored it and just went, no, I'm just going to do it my way. And I sat down and I wrote from my heart. And how long did it take to write the book? From from when I actually did, did, like, committed to the process properly to when it was on the shelf to buy. It was just under two years. Is that fast or is that... 
I don't know. Some, I don't know. Some people... I mean, I started writing first drafts 15 years ago because okay. I always wanted to write about this. But there were several gaps in between. But um, look, I, I don't know if it's fast or not. I guess you'd have to ask a few other writers. There's a lot of big-time authors that seem to whip out a book in three months. Yeah. But I don't know how common that is. So Okay. Yeah. It felt like a long time for me. And talk to me about the release of the book because I've even noticed... When we first connected, maybe a month and a half ago now, a month ago, and we booked this in, I know you had a really busy month ahead of you. It's been every day. Everywhere. (laughs) So, what's that process been like where you're so comfortable with the story now and you're comfortable sharing and speaking about it? Is that a real pleasure to be able to sit in, I guess, these podcasts and these interviews and, and have journalists approach you and write stories off the back of the book? Yeah, it has been. It's been a really big honour to be able to meet some really great people like yourself. And I've, I've noticed that there's so many people wanting to spread good messages and good vibes like yourself as well, you know. And that's really nice to see that there are platforms that can help us raise the vibration of our collective consciousness. Of course. And I'm really happy to be a part of that. So I feel like, yeah, I've written the book, but why stop there, you know? this is a great opportunity for me to be able to just keep sharing positivity and love and hope and healing and all yeah. and all those things. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I've been, it's funny, I was in an episode yesterday um, with Tom Waterhouse and we spoke about books at the end of the episode. And I think subconsciously I knew I was coming into this with you today and thinking about books and the book that you've written and I asked Tom if he reads much, and he was saying he reads quite a bit. He reads every night. And for me, I'm a real listener. Like, I love listening and I love talking. So I've always found it hard to sit and focus. But I've made a sort of a pact to myself to start reading more and to start sitting and, and separating myself from just listening and, and sort of creating the story in my head as I read along. And the first book that I kicked that off with was The Alchemist. Oh. And funnily enough... It was the perfect book for the time. I think I picked it up at the right time. It was it was actually last year in September. I was in hospital. I was a little bit unwell with my CF. And I said to my mum, I might try and read while I'm here. And my mum loves reading. And she said to me, I've got a book that you love, The Alchemist. So she gave it to me. And it sat in my bag the whole time. And I didn't read. I just couldn't bring myself to pick the book up. And I think funnily enough, it just wasn't the right time because... I ended up then in the next six months of my life going through a stage where I knew I wasn't headed in the right trajectory. Don't me wrong, I was happy. I had amazing people in my life and I was, you know, working hard and having great success in my job, but it didn't feel right. And I knew there was something else for me. And in the time where I really struggled at the start of the, or the end of last year and the start of this year to find my direction and, and to make the decision to leave real estate, and sacrifice everything for my podcast on my show I picked up that book and it to me was the perfect time to read it because it was about a journey and and finding yourself in that position where your heart took you on that journey and took you to what to what you need to be doing and I thought that was the right time to read that there's a reason I didn't pick it up in September and I toyed with the idea for the last month of should I read Carmen's book before she comes and, and sat on the podcast and shared the story. And I thought there was a reason I read Alchemist at that time because I was connected to the story and what was happening. And I thought, I want to wait until I meet her. 
Mm. And I don't want to research too much. I want to hear the story and I want to understand it from her. And then I want to read it once I'm connected to her as a person. And I'm glad I have because I'm looking forward to diving into the book now and and knowing you and, and knowing your nature and the type of human being that you are from our chat today and our time spent together is going to be exciting to then read that journey and, and, and know you and, and feel connected. So I look forward to diving into it. And I hope that everyone, whether you're watching or listening, decides to do the same too because I think there's so much power in this story regardless of whether you've been through a similar circumstance or whether you just want to understand a new experience that someone else has been through in their life I think there's so much credit to this story about your strength as a human being and your character talk to me about where people can find the book it is called The Dangerous Pursuit of Happiness or A Dangerous Pursuit of Happiness talk to me about where they can find it I have a website and it's carmengreentree.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-G-R-E-N-T-R-E-E.com. And you can also, so all the links to buying the book is on my website, but you can also go direct Amazon, you can go Booktopia, Book Depository, Fishpond, you'll find it. You just have to type in either my name or the, the book title. Amazing. And But I, I just wanted to add to that for those of you that, think about maybe whether you you might some people have said to me oh I don't really want to read your story because it sounds too horrifying I want to say that it it definitely has some horrifying aspects to the story but I really really focused on writing the story from a place of grace and a place of healing and a place of wisdom higher perspective of the story it wasn't going into the trauma as much as it is just explaining what had happened and how the healing process actually unfolds so it's more about hope and it's more about inspiration than it is about this terrifying experience that's really nice to hear and i'm often interested to ask people when you you take a new step in life and a new career path and now you are a writer um i can imagine that's exciting to to know that your book's on the shelf and your story's on the shelf has this spurred maybe the idea to continue writing, to continue writing on the topic of healing or to, to venture into new areas of, of written text? I've always known that I'm destined to be a writer. So, yeah, definitely there will be more books to come. And the next book that will come will most likely be a book on healing. Yeah. Most likely, but I've got a couple of other people in my ear, you know, you're going to have, I have so many well-meaning people going, you've got to write a book about this. You've got to write a book about that. I can imagine. But, but what I feel in my heart right now is that the, the next book will really be about taking healing to an even deeper, a more powerful level uh, of, of wholeness and, and spiritual wellness. Can I ask for the audience that are listening here today? can imagine there's many messages you'd like to communicate but for someone who's maybe sitting on the other side of a computer screen or listening to this through their airpods or their iphone right now is there a message that you have for someone who's maybe going through a tough time like you were or an experience like that which you'd like them to hear yeah so what we focus on we can actually grow and I myself know, and there's a lot of people out there, I'm sure every single day, know what real darkness feels like and, and what it is like when you're right in the middle of it. 
like long-term darkness. And what I'd like to say is that for me in my experience, and I believe this to be true for 99.9% of humans, is that it doesn't matter how dark it is and how long it's been dark for, there is always a light inside of you somewhere. And if you can just, even if you can't see it, just know that it is there and just make the decision to look for it and find it. And when you find it, focus on it as much as you can and stay there with that light as much as you can. And then that will grow. And that's, that's where you can actually connect to that higher intelligence, that infinite intelligence. That's, that's the, that's, that was my, if you, for lack of a better way to explain it, that was like my phone call to the big guy upstairs yeah. when I was on the boat, help me. I, that little light went, sent that message to the infinite intelligence and said, right, we're going to send someone to rescue you. I love that. Yeah. Follow that light and believe in it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been my absolute pleasure to host Carmen Greentree on the Bradley J Driver Experience. I will make sure that that website is in the show notes so you can go and easily click that link for the book. And I'm sure that you would love to hear from people who have had the opportunity to read it too. So Definitely. Um, definitely head across and, and follow Carmen on social media too, which I'll make sure that tag is in there as well. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure to host you. Um, and if you've been listening and you love this, we always enjoy the reviews and the five-star ratings. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bradley. Not a problem.